you know, there's something to be said about privacy and about not being, you know, in German you'd say, um, eine gläserne Person, a glass person or see-through right. person, that everything about you is is, is um, something you can check and factual about, right? Gläserne Person. Eine gläserne Person. Ich versuche gläserne persönlich zu sein. <lacht> ich versuche mal, aber ich, ich traue nicht unserer Regierung. Ja, das ist, es ist, es ist immer, es ist gut, eine, eine gesunde Dosis Skepsis zu haben. Welcome to the Live Drop. This is Mark Valley. Today's guest is Dagmar Hovestad. She's the communications director and spokesperson for the Stasi Records Archive in Berlin, Germany. It's a federal commission responsible for overseeing the largest collection of secret police files in recorded history. Uh, I have to admit, talking with Dagmar about the Stasi reminds me of those TV shows Galactica or Occupied, where this evil, malintentioned empire sends a charming, intelligent, and disarming ambassador to represent them. We had a nice time chatting from a former Cold War bunker in the Venda Museum of the Cold War in Culver City. Begin transmission. So just to give everybody an idea, the Stasi was... Um, uh, Last time we talked, I, I said, oh, they're a big spy. No, they are really classified for the most part as a, as a secret police organization. Right. I mean, we, we make a distinction. There are, there are many things. And over the course of 40 years, the role of the Stasi changed a lot. But they were formerly uh, the Ministry for State Security. That's the literal translation. Um, installed in February of 1950 to guard the power of the Socialist Party. That's in essence what there was. State security is is sort of in that sense a neutral term you want to keep your state and its citizens safe but um their their task was rather a political one and political in the sense that they needed to keep the socialist party in power and not just guard the state the state eventually was owned by the socialist party so there was not much separation and so their 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 task from uh, became pretty much a policing of their own citizens and as and we call it a secret police because they also had executive functions they could arrest people they were running jails so the the strict um, separation of powers wasn't wasn't there usually that is not the case in an intelligence service only um you you gather information and you analyze that information and you hand it over to the other branches that will act upon it the stasi had the distinction of being able to act without any interference by judicial or any other means um to to uh, to prosecute uh, what they defined as the political enemy of the party and some of the numbers of the just to get an idea of this of a East Germany had a population, I think, at its height of about 16 to 17 million people. Correct, correct. And there were approximately 190,000 people that worked in some well, the, the, fashion for the The Stasi. Ministry for State Security, but in one the end... Of, one out of six is the big fraction everybody uh, tosses yeah. around. Well, that's not... I think the calculations, you know, you can you can play with numbers and get something out of it uh, according to what your goal is. But the this, the bare numbers are about 16 million East Germans in the end of 1989. October are the last figures, official figures of the employees or, um, you know, the offices of this uh, the Ministry for State Security. There were a little over 91,000 on staff. And there were about double the amount, or 180,000 informants, which in Stasi terms are called unofficial collaborators. So we, we translate this, tr this clunky term, um, to signify a little bit more. They're called 
inoffizielle Mitarbeiter, meaning unofficial co-workers or employees, but really they were informing as regular citizens on their co-workers, co-students, sometimes family members to the Stasi about what people were saying and thinking towards the government in order to enable the Stasi to protect again the power of the party. So you could say there's about 270,000 people officially, unofficially associated with the Ministry for State Security. There were a total of 2.3 million party members of the Socialist Party, everybody in the Stasi. Pretty much everybody, over 90% were party members. That was sort of self-understood, you're a party mm -hmm. member when you join the ministry. And many of the people in official party functions also contributed to information gathering and handed over information to the Stasi. So now you do the mass. Um, 16, 17 million regular East Germans, 2.3 million party members, about 270,000 in associated officially and unofficially with the Stasi. Um, th there's a ratio that is most certainly the densest in all of Eastern Europe. So um, they had a lot of information. I mean, the, the, there's some, some other stuff was that from, you know, 60 kilometers of, of files and... 60 miles of files and 111 kilometers. 60 miles, <laughs> even more. Uh, even more, 60 miles. 111 kilometers of files. And the conversion and the number of, of you know, audio recordings and... Um, 27,000 audio files. 27,000. So, yeah, yeah. it's just... It's just 2,700, 800 films and videos. So basically... Millions of photos. So they basically were. Um, I mean, if you look at if you look at Facebook, they've been able to collect a massive amount of information. Haven't really made sense about the process or the way to distribute it or what the implications are. Um, as, you, far, as far as we know, as far as we, I, I think inside they know a lot. They know better how to. Make, I think they know how to make. They're learning how to make money off of it. That's for sure. Yes. But um, do you? I mean, let's 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 just go with the assumption that they had all this information. So it was the, essentially the first Facebook. You could, you could, you know, it's a, it's a state organized attempt at, uh, at surveillance and the, the Stasi in the specific form, you know, was, was, a. They, why would they have that much data on people? And you could call it banal everyday surveillance data on people is because they were always afraid that somebody would, would, um, stop following the party line and express dissident thought and said, we want a different party. We want the freedom to elect other political opinions, we want the freedom to form unions, to gather, to speak our minds, we want independent media, not just state-controlled media. All of that was considered a danger to the status quo and had to be oppressed. So, But those are, you know, it's literally just making use of your human rights. You have the right to organize, you have the right to speak your mind, you have the right to travel freely. So in that sense, um, it, it sort of became a, a thought control police. You had to figure out what people were thinking in order to stop them from acting upon it. And so that's where there is the need to really go in into the privacy of the homes and of people's um, individual lives um, to, in order to get that information. It wasn't information about how you build a bomb and how you plan and plot an attack and try to be a mass, uh, you know, inflict like mass chaos on people. It was really just about the individual expressing their personal feelings and thoughts and that you had to stop from turning into something that would undermine or even, um, you know, a revolution, start a revolution to undermine the, the socialist party's power. So in that sense, it is quite like today because the quality of information they were largely looking for had to do with everyday behavior of people where would they move who would they meet what do they like what do they read you know all this type of stuff that we think is banal information that 
helps somebody else um, get better product to us in the in a more um, right. commercial sense, but it also can be a scary, phenomenal tool of a state to really put every single citizen under surveillance and uh, and um, you know and and act upon it when you behave outside of what the state decides is acceptable. Yeah. We're, we're recording. This is actually the first interview that I've done at, at the Venda Museum, the, the sponsor of uh, the live drop. And I think if you listen very carefully, you can hear the, the director of the Venda Museum talking in his office. We can, so we can, if you listen quietly, we can actually listen in on what he's talking about. Maybe see what he's thinking about. But you have to you have to also say that you chose not to go into the recording booth because it's a little tight in there and a little um, dark. So we, we're sitting in front of I, the recording booth, which makes it easier to listen or hear the outside noises. Isn't it amazing? We, I could put this microphone against that wall and listen, hear everything <laughs> Hear everything that he's saying. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's um, it, it creates, I mean, so, so you know, because you made a point about Facebook Stasi or data collection. So one one way or another, collecting data is a neutral process, right? It's not per se good or bad. It's just collecting a lot of data. Um, the Stasi collected data unbeknownst to people without their consent in largely analog ways, but increasingly in the 80s, also through computers and um, data storage, digital data storage, um, that they were able to destroy a lot. So we don't really have that much um, left over from that. We just know how they they worked on that. So um, today, the situation is manifold, uh, larger and, and different. If you If you try to compare the amount of data the 111 kilometers of records and turn them into what you could into uh, gigabytes or something. And you compare them to what maybe Facebook or Google or Apple or whoever, or the state, the NSA has compiled in digital data. It feels like, you know, a mini coffee bean in a sea of, of sure. uh, you know, like a huge pile of, of coffee, right? Yeah. So it, it, in, in terms of the amount, the quantities, the, 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 the comparisons really don't t- teach you much about what's going on um and the, the so digitization of information just makes the quantities enormous and everybody you know contributes voluntarily you but know. didn't they also use like something to help their their search i knew i know our, our information is all digitalized and it's much easier to search but um i think there was like if someone had a file they were usually filed under different names and subjects and you know I am an unofficial. They they almost had s s uh, SEOs for all the, all the different files, right? You could find a certain subject or a certain case or a certain event under maybe five different headings. For for um, they had a in the the eighties, I think. Which the led most, to a lot of duplication. You've mentioned before. right. The information is stored in in um, same information is stored in very different contexts and repurposed and rewritten up, and so it was an enormous amount of work to do that. But by the by the by the nineteen eighties, the Stasi had um, arrived at a pretty phenomenal, interesting system of information retrieval, and they had stored information on people, and you would need to look for a person's name to find information, but they also stored it under 
um, headlines and subject matters Hashtags. that they found <laughs> that they found interesting. <laughs> yeah. And um, they had a they were were slowly storing all of this in databases electronically, but they had an enormous system of index cards. Uh, we have forty one million index cards in about over four thousand different types of categories and subsystems that lead you to all kinds of information. But they had what they um, called the centrale materialablage, the central material storage, um, where in the 80s they had a rather constantly updated system of, of key information on, on the topics, subversion, you know, the enemy rising up, or people that they had, that, that they had um, all over the East Germany connected to each other. So, and they had also cross-referenced the um, database of the Ministry of the Interior, because every citizen in East Germany mm -hmm. had to officially locate themselves and given their address. And so, They they were they were pretty advanced in in that they even had access to insurance data which even in East Germany to the according to the laws at the time wasn't allowed to just cross reference different types of databases um, they had even access to library records and the books you would uh, check out in order to figure out what you would put in your head and what could potentially become dangerous so were they using this I'm just sort of fascinated about you know they they had this much data and any analyst would get excited about that and i'm sure people still do i know there's been maybe three million to how many, how many people have actually looked for their personal file the, the in personal access requests we have three million over three million requests which um, equals about two million people um because the extra million are repeat requests people that have started to look into their files in the 90s when we were just beginning with retrieving the records and understanding the system of the archive um you know they said well we i found a few records but there's probably more now that they've dealt with the archive for 20 25 years so i'm doing a repeat request so we have about a million repeat requests so it, it whittles down to actual two million people having requested access to files but what i find is interesting is now it's just this huge trove of information that people can use for academic purposes for sociological research and political mm -hmm. and so forth mm -hmm. how many how many requests for you know for access to the files do you get in a year for for other other, other than somebody wanting to look up their own file I think we have about um, uh, 1,400 requests from media and researchers. And that is, seems like a small number when you compare it to personal requests. But, you know, sometimes are, these are projects uh, that um, last for many years when the, one of the larger last projects was to understand the exact amount of people that got killed along the inner German border. We hand out... 50, 60, 70, 80, 90,000 pages in this project. So all of these pages have to be researched and, and handed over. And so the, 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 the single request in media and um, scientific research can be a process of a number of six months or a year with, with tens of thousands of pages, whereas in the personal request, it could only be five to 10 pages and it's not that big of a deal. So, But about 1,400. Um, What's more time-consuming at this point? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> It's much more time-consuming and uh, more intense because then you have to look for if somebody wants to figure out what the Stasi did in terms of uh, West German terrorism or um, uh, spying on the United States or, um, uh, you know, very pe peculiar subjects like uh, putting a theater under surveillance. And, you know, when we have to research in, in all kinds of different 
um, repositories and it becomes quite complicated in a long, uh, longer research on our end. Um, and then we have about, uh, the numbers are anywhere between five and nine, nine thousand a year, um, that have to do with vetting. Um, we're still part of the general um, security check for people that work in in sensitive areas in government. Um, so if you were born in 1972 or older than that, we are still every five years part of the of that vetting process. Mm-hmm. But if you get elected um, into public office or you are in a higher ranking administrative position in the government, um, you will also get vetted against these records. So there's no secrets passed with the Stasi when you are working in the democratic uh, system of the United Germany. And then, oh, and then, then there's also a number of a couple of thousand requests for rehabilitation purposes. So people that need to prove with these records that they had been um, a political prisoner and when they go into retirement and they have to account for years that they haven't worked or, you know, they can prove with these records that that, that was a, they, their stint in jail was political reason, for political reasons, not for criminal reasons. And so th- those types of clarifications of, of uh, your life can happen through um, agencies that then request these records. And they are also there to prove that uh, you might have been a Stasi officer working for the Ministry for State Security for 20 years. And the United Germany pays your retirement um, social security now. And so those records yeah. also serve that purpose. Yeah. So oh, you yourself were a Stasi officer. <laughs> are you talking to me personally? <laughs> <laughs> I, want, I, was, I wanted to start this interview off saying Dagmar Havasat, who was a very, very young Stasi agent right. at the time, but you were a very uh, I was highly young placed. And I didn't know any better. No. You're a highly placed <laughs> analyst and in the, with sure, the Stasi. No, no, no. But after, but after working with it, for, after working in that. Well, I was, I was to clarify this, right? I have, I had, um, I'm, I was born in West Germany, right. and I was, uh, I had nothing to do with. So you with, refute with, to refute. The, the, you have to. Re, isn't it crazy? You have to refute. You have to refute. Well, you want to be now. clear, but um, no, yeah. we, the people, you know, it's, it's kind of a joke and it's fun. It's, uh, it's, uh, you know, but rumors start easily. And today, you just want to be clear about what happened. I was a journalist for the majority of my professional life. I grew up in the west of Germany near the Dutch border. I had nothing to do with East Germany. Coincidentally, I just was always curious. So it. Just kind of found me kind of like the the uh, the director of the Vendor Museum who also was just fascinating with this history that was disappearing and I was I was living a little bit of it but I had no personal connection to it and now I'm just fascinated by it so do you have you have a, you must be getting I mean, you've worked. How long have you have you worked with the Stasi? With the Stasi Records Archive. Stasi Records Archive. <laughs> <laughs> you keep trying that. You know how long have you worked I'll with cut the Stasi? That out. How, long have, how long have you worked with the Stasi? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> anyway, no, no. I'm. Uh, I was. I was asked to become the communication head and the spokesperson in March of 2011. So about seven years. Seven years. So I mean, when I was when I was a kid, we we had these. A lot of people had these camps down along the river, and they would move there in the summertime. Wasn't anything really exciting, and they had party lines, phone lines. So one line would be shared by maybe five families, and we just knew that if it was raining out, you don't use the phone because people were bored and they're sitting around. And you would make a, you'd hear these little clicks on the line because you knew somebody was 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 talking to you. So we just sort of knew that well, you can you know the best you know, not that you had anything to hide and you're calling anybody, but if you just you kind of knew how right. to get around that. You know? So you, you were you were also protecting privacy, right? So privacy, yeah. like not not 
You want to choose who knows what about your life. That's the right. essence of privacy. It's your choice to keep parts of your life secret to, you know, your family or the state or a commercial entity. I mean, that to me is, is a, is a, it's quite a, it's the new currency, is a new value to just say, I have nothing to hide, but I still want to make that choice of what of my life becomes a public knowledge and what becomes private and with everything being digital and with the social networks and, and this whole idea that your life displays out there in the virtual world and you create this version of you and everything is see-through is, is there you know to me it, it's kind of interesting to just say well parts of me yes they belong out there but other parts are just for me and nobody else needs to know mm -hmm. and nobody else should just know about it by sneaking into my email account or sneaking into uh, my social media interactions and stuff like that you know mm -hmm. so but anyway you were saying that in the in in your instance uh, knowing that somebody else might listen in on your phone conversation um changed your behavior right Yeah, and we just we just figured a different way to work around it or whatever conversations you you know you wouldn't talk about with your friends about going out and yeah. you know finding alcohol or something you know when you're younger <laughs> know, because if, if, if might your be dad your, listens in you don't want to say it might be your aunt or uncle listening. I know, how, but I, I, I guess I guess my thought was was you know you've worked you've worked in and around these these records mm -hmm. and you know you've talked with people for a while I'm just wondering do you, Do you, you must get kind of get a feeling or imagine what it would have been like or what it must have been oh, like yeah. to be surveyed to that extent. Yeah. Well, we talked we talk to a bunch of people. We're actually opening up in, in June of this year an exhibition about the archive and what's in these records. It's called um, Access to Secrecy, right? You can access what was formerly a secret, a state secret. And in, in the course of that, uh, we interviewed a few of these people and that had a major surveillance put on them and how that must have felt. I mean, they, they understood And that is not the majority of East Germans. Those were people that the Stasi in the 80s believed to be subversing the course of socialist history. And so they put, you know, the, the whole array of measures on them. So they had bugs in their apartment. They knew that their phone was bugged. They saw the Stasi guys outside their apartment photographing them, following them around. But even people that, um, quote unquote, did not necessarily challenge the status quo or the state had an awareness of the the state and the Stasi being somewhere in their everyday life. So being on the phone, even though not many people had a phone, but people used phones at work or at their neighbors, you were aware there was this little second nature in your head, that little voice that said, just don't say anything and everything, what, what happens here. So You know, after 40 years of, 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 within 40 years of, of East German's existence with new generations growing up behind a wall with the knowledge of socialist control of every part of your life, you develop this type of antenna for knowing that, you know, there's, a, there's, there's something that the state wants from me, so I have to give it to him. But what I really think and want, the state shouldn't know, so I have to keep it away. And the means of communications, you know, be it on the phone or in a letter, You know, Stasi had access to letters um, any time that they wanted. But even in the personal relations to other people, you could never be a hundred percent sure if that other person might not just turn around and talk to the party or the Stasi. And so you you had a sense of um, who was with you or who was with the others and with the system. And so so that became um, part of 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 the of of your understanding as a citizens in a system like that in a repressed in a repressive system and i think that's 
the the most um, detrimental legacy that continues because you you know your sense of trust in a state in the other person um and your relationship to the state um um i I can't really think of a name now, but um, there's a pretty good article that was analyzing the current status of research on the Stasi in the mid 2000s, and um, she she found this term of that it corrupted the citizens, it created corrupted citizens, people that that had no trust um, necessarily in government, and that also played a role in terms of their interactions and their communications. And um, that is, you know, it's that's that's something we still deal with today, 30 oh, years that's after. That's fascinating that, that that level of 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 distrust, the, the distrust is out there, that other people could use that information against you, that that innate distrust could create a corrupt society. I think the term corrupt citizen is even better because it's like, we are, you know, we're people, we're private person, but we're also, we all live in, in a state, in, in whatever state we live in, and there's a relationship between, you know, the state and the individual, the citizen. So a citizen is supposed to partake in creating the community. You vote, you, you express your dissent, you express your anger, or you express your support, you organize yourself, and you are free to do so. And so in this, in this, um, I don't know, uh, organic dance between the citizen and the state there's you know there's powers at work that that enable you as a citizen to challenge the the power of the state you want checks and balances all of these things that have to do with democracy but if you're in a state where there's 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 stagnation there's no flexibility there's only one person and one belief and one party line and you have to subject you have to um, conform yourself to that and if you if you do decide not to do so, you're automatically thrown out and you become an enemy and you're being persecuted and there's repression. So you, you really limit your choices. You voluntarily say, well, I can't really express what I think. So I just do it in the privacy of my home. But there I don't really challenge anything because I just want to live my life. I want to have a family. I want to celebrate my birthdays. I want to go on little vacations and I want to make the best out of my life that I can. And you can't fold anybody for doing that. You know, nobody is born to challenge the system and become a revolutionary. Mm -hmm. So people in a system like that voluntarily limit their freedoms, their choices. Um, you know, the, the best example is, is the wall or the inner German border. You live in, you grow up in a state, um, where your government tells you, if you travel west, I'm going to shoot you. That is the baseline. So it came to the, to, to be accepted in so far that people would eventually say, well, you know, you knew that if you went to the border, you get shot. So you just stay away from there. But to me, the, the answer would be, no, it's wrong. I demand from my government to stop prohibiting my freedom to travel. But in that, you know, cut off and repressive regime and authoritarian regime, you, you voluntarily renounce your freedoms, your access to human rights, because you say, well, you know, they have decided that and I better put up with it because otherwise I get shot and so is it. And so, and that's it. Right. So I, that's what you can study in, in these records and in the mechanisms of, of a regime like that, that you, you, you become corrupted as a citizen because you, you, you relinquish your rights and you accept that you don't have these rights anymore. So they had kind of created a fertile ground. I mean, just by having that inner German border, as we mm -hmm. call it, they created this kind of fertile ground to to kind of create 
corruption amongst citizens and distrust that could actually work in their favor. So people would actually tell, right. tell on each other or not really. Right. I mean, it's, uh, how do you, I mean, th that's the, that's still the big question. How can the system have worked for 40 years? Why did it take 40 years for people to finally say enough with only one party and only one system of media and only, um, you know, and, and not being able to travel and not access and not be free in this world. It took 40 years. That's a long time. You know, so this, the mechanisms that work, I mean, there's, there's a couple of big clear reasons. Um, you know, the people were already fed up four years after the founding of East Germany in 1953. There was a huge uprising, June 17, about a million people were on the streets trying to kick out the, the, the uh, Socialist Party. And um, they were greeted with Soviet tanks and they, they rolled down the uprising. So it means if you don't conform, if you don't follow, um, tanks will roll, you get shot. And um, you have to fear for your life. So that settled a lot of the initial um, uh, um, uh, un unrest uh, and dissatisfaction. And there were only two choices then. You conform and say, whatever, I just focus on my personal life and that's it. Or you leave. And throughout the 50s, it was quite, still quite simple to leave because um, the You know, we call it the inner German border because it was between East and West Germany. And with, in Berlin, in the middle of East Germany, surround, uh, was, was sort of had the Western half that was also free. So to come from East Berlin to West Berlin was easier. So uh, tens of thousands of people did that, left East Germany because they couldn't change the system. And that eventually led to the East German government, the Socialist Party to say, we'll build a wall. We fortify that border. So whoever leaves gets shot. And it only works if really people get killed and that's what they made sure of for about 28 years then for the, as long as the wall existed until November 9 in 1989 when the wall fell. Yeah, somebody, somebody, I was reading something, they said, well, how would you describe, now Russia's had a different situation, they had Stalin, I know we can talk about all this stuff for ages, <laughs> and uh, you're actually the perfect guest, I could just sort of tee up some strange, incoherent question and you could kind of, you know, get, that, get, give, give me a... a, a An interesting paragraph. Not to everything, but you know, as long as we're staying within <laughs> within the vicinity of, of yeah. East Germany and the Stasi and stuff, that's I what I who, I forget who it was, but it's like Solzhenitsyn or somebody. They, they asked him, just describe Russians to me. How, how could you describe Russians? And I'm just talking about, you know, after the Cheka was the precursor for the Stasi and, and Stal right. Stalin's secret right. service. Yeah. It was all, I mean, the Stasi was really sort of modeled off of. The Russians. All after the Eastern Revolution. European secret polices after 45 were modeled after the KGB or the NKWD at the time, NKVD in, in English. Um, and, and they're, they're sort of, they're, um, what would you call that? The, the mother of it all, the father of it all is the Cheka, which was installed by Lenin in 1917 to protect the Russian Revolution. By Felix right. Jerzinski. Yes. And the first, the first head of the Cheka was Felix Jerzinski, who became a big inspiration to the Minister for State Security in East Germany. But this whole idea, this, the philosophy and this paranoia, because you're always thinking that the revolution will fail because the bourgeoisie doesn't want it. And you always define everything in terms of an enemy that is not for the cause. Right. So that, that, that is an in, ingrained in, um, paranoia in all of this. Um, and that was, that was modeled after the Soviet example, the KGB in Bulgaria, Hungary, Czechoslovakia at the time. Um, 
Romania and, and East Germany. Right? So they were the disciples of that, and that's how it continued. But then I forgot, what was your question? I didn't even ask one. Oh, you said something about the Russians. You're amazing. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I think. Well, what I wanted to say. Well, my question. My question was. I, I forget who I was. Uh, who, where I read it, but they. So, the, yeah. it, it was this sort of counterintuitive explanation of how do you, you know how would you explain the Russian? And then yeah. he just said, um, they steal. They steal. That was like the face. Oh. I mean, of course, it's a you know, it's, it's a it's a grand. Um, Oh, yeah, you know, general have, sweeping generalization, yeah. but I think it goes to explain a little bit more about the, you know, the, kind of the cronyism that's sort of. I think Russia is even followed. is is what I what what can be observed in East Germany only five times um, more, more more complicated and and in terms of time even much much longer. You know, I said the the big question is why did East Germany, why did the communist rule in the East last for 40 years and that's a long long time. Maybe it's not a big time in terms of history, but four decades is quite a time to have two or three generations come up influenced by that system. But um so in the Russian Revolution was in 1917, right? I'm talking from 45 through 49 with Soviet occupation of East Germany, and then it was 40 years from 49 to 89. So maybe altogether it's 44 years. Um, then add on to that 45, 1917 through 45 till 1990. That's the Russian communist regime, right? So, um, that would make about 70, 77 years. Yeah. 1917 through 1990, 77 years of communist rule. In uh, East uh, in 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 Russia, and then the Tsarist regime wasn't necessarily a republic or a democracy or anything like that. So there there's a continuation of rulers that only decide that whatever's best for the ruling class works, and the rest has mm -hmm. to follow somehow or another. With uh, you know starvation periods under the Tsar, under Stalin, and um, repression all the time. So I don't know how how you create. A, a people that loves a sense of freedom and individuality and claims their own rights versus a tradition of, of being governed by people who really did not have the best of the people at heart, but their own interests at heart. So that, that to me is, is Russia in, you know, in a, oh, I in think very you're talking about the United States. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were talking about, about. I'm talking about the past. The, I thought you were talking about our current administration. <laughs> <laughs> but you could be right. So um, anyway, I, I, I just enjoy talking to you about this stuff. I, I wanted to get into a little bit about. I mean, I was talking to some Russians recently about. Um, you know, we're talking about a Russian film, and you know what the meaning of it was. And he said, you know, you can't look at the film. You can't say the message. The message is whatever tells you. And I was like, well, this is obviously telling. I mean, sometimes it's just obviously giving you some sort of political message. Right, right. And, um, but I was just wondering, um, you know, the role of like creativity when you're in a regime that's watching over you like that and censorship is, I think it, my theory is that it almost makes it better hmm. because you don't really have the, you have to really layer in your meaning and layer in your, right, your message right. or whatever angst or, um, resentment you might have, you've got to really layer it in well. Do you think that had an effect? On, Wait, in, um, in terms of East Germany, I, I I know that to a certain degree that there is sort of this, um, what do you call it, a second language or the in-between language, right? That you have this sort of silent code of alluding to things that if, you know, um, um, uh, literally looking at them would not be 
complicated or raise an eyebrow with the with the party but if if you really know what it what you try to signify with it you get to feel fly under the radar and you express a thought but it's really again to me that is also a, a version of being corrupted because why don't you say what you mean right you can't right. say what you mean because that will have a negative effect so you try to say it but you you hide it in plain sight and hope that people get it so um and then you can say well you know we were really smart because we we didn't say anything that was forbidden but you know we expressed something and if you read between the lines that's the german saying also zwischen den zeilen lesen if you read between the lines um then you you see how revolutionary that really is but um you know it's 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 just really it's just trying to 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 serve both worlds and that uh, doesn't w work that well you know i i think right. yeah. but um yes it's a strategy of survival it's at least a strategy to express something um and 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 um and not challenge challenge it or put lend yourself in jail but saying that in east germany and and certainly in russia there's always been courageous people who were more true to their own individual sense of freedom and expression and didn't care and in and, and challenged the system and they ended up in gulags or um you know today in jail and working camps or something like that you know i mean that's um pussy riot is an example of that you know there's there's people it's not like you know that's just because in the end, it's always about the majority. So just because the majority chooses the easier way, and and that's not non-judgmental at all. It's just saying you know people want to make a living and live their lives. So that doesn't mean that in Russia or in any other repressive regime there aren't those people who are courageous enough to say, "But I can't stand living like this." In me, there's something else, and I need to express that, regardless of the consequences. Recently, there was the um, White House press, White House um, correspondents' dinner. <laughs> But there's, yeah, there's been some controversy over that. Um, I wanted to talk about the role of humor in East Germany. I mean, was Honecker, was, were there any comedians? I mean, I, know, I wrote down some of my favorite jokes, were, and I can show you. But were there actually? <laughs> they were two. They, they called they called cabaret, uh, you know, cabaret. But they were in Leipzig and in Berlin. Uh, they were, I think, in Leipzig it was called the Hercules Coil, and in Berlin it was the Diestel, um sort of uh, political comedy. Do you call it political? I don't know, but uh, that that um, brought stuff on stage. You were certainly invited to make jokes and. Um, uh, um, be cynical about capitalism all the time. You know, there's, there's, there was room for those jokes. You weren't necessarily allowed to criticize your government that much. Um, but jokes were a way that, that would circulate. Um, and that was a way for the people to, you know, express what they couldn't express otherwise. And so they made jokes about the, the Politburo and, um, oh, if I think hard about it, I'll find one. Do you have, do you have a joke about the Politburo? Not the Politburo. The one that I was, my well, there's a few. One, one I noticed was Milka and Honecker were talking, trying to find something they have in common. Honecker said that he enjoys, um, like he likes to collect jokes, and um, Milka said, "Oh, that's interesting. I, I collect comedians." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Something, something like, like that. Like yeah, that. that. Well, I think it was I think it was a play on Sam Elm and Fair Sam yeah. or something like oh, that. Oh, okay. Well, there's, there's certainly jokes about the age. I, I can't get, there's something about a crocodile and teeth and the member of the Politburo because they're all over 80 and people made fun of the old right. guys in the Politburo. And, um, you know, there were times in the 50s, certainly in the 60s, where telling a joke would land you in jail. You had to be really careful about it. And, and, you know, looking at the two 
big leaders, Ulbricht and Honecker, and then Politburo guys and uh, Grotewohl and the, these, you know, these figures that, that uh, were um, the heads of state. They're not very inspiring figures. And their speeches are goddamn boring. And, and they, yeah. they spewed all this socialist ideological language all the time. And, you know, it's, I think the, the year of the 40th anniversary, 1989, Erich Honecker said something, um, I, I'll give it to you in German and then I translate. Den Sozialismus in seinem Lauf halten weder Ochs noch Esel auf. So it's a, it's a child rhyme, uh, rhyming thing. And it basically said the socialism in its course is neither stopped by ho uh, donkey, uh, nor ox. And you're like, what? You know, I mean, it's like, this is 1989, right? So wh what are you even, what, I what is this? What is this speech about? Are you seriously believing that that, uh, that type of, um, uh, two, two sentence or uh, uh, rhyme, um, Uh, is is a is a uh, rallying cry, and you can go on, and for another fifty years, a hundred years, the wall will stand. I mean, well, you know, it, it was just a sign of how much out of touch they were, and so of course people made jokes about the speeches and what they said, but um, you had to be a little careful. I think by the latter half of the eighties, um, there was a lot more political humor around, and you could express it. But those uh, um, official cabarets, the cabaret. Um, that, that came out of a tradition that predates East Germany, they had to really be careful about how far out they could go, um, if they were attacking, you know, not the West, but their own status. I went to, um, a lot of theater plays in the, uh, I moved to West Berlin in 1987, so mm -hmm. I was still in the city with two years of the wall. I was a student just, um, in the middle of my studies at the West Berlin University, and we went to, um, stage place in the east just because somebody knew somebody there and then we got tickets and and it was kind kind of interesting because you know talking about reading in between lines we were a group of five or six people from west berlin and we'd watch these classic plays by brecht or ibsen or you know like they had some you know interesting um stuff on stage and it was often the case that we the five six seven west berliners would laugh um, or just chuckle at something that would happen and nobody around us would really even notice that that was in any way funny. And then at other... Like the West Berliners would, would laugh? We, we, we the, five, the group of five, we would laugh sure. or chuckle and say, oh, look at this, ha, 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 ha. Nobody around us would find that funny. Whereas there's other parts where everybody in the theater was just laughing and thinking or having a little ha, ha, ha about something and we're like, that wasn't funny, what's going on here? And so it's all about the context. So, you know, reading in between lines. So even in a classical play... Um, making a little note about, um, maybe that character was called Hans or Heinz, um, and, or Hermann, and they would just throw out a line regarding Hermann, and then people around us would know, oh, it's probably Hermann Axen in the Politburo, and, but, you know, I didn't really know the names of the Politburo guys, so, You, you looked for different clues and there was, and you needed to know what they might allude to in order to find things funny. Whereas we found things funny that came from a Western context uh, that, that they didn't really know why, why that would be an interesting oh, joke. Oh God, or something. that would have been interesting. Yeah, it was very subtle. I yeah. mean, I, at the time I didn't write it down. Otherwise, uh, you know, I just remember that there were these moments where I was like, why is nobody laughing? This was funny. And then other yeah. one was like, why is everybody laughing? I don't understand the joke, right? So you, you really, you, you could really tell that the 40 years, um, it's the same language, you know, we all speak German, but they were complete different contexts in which you would understand, um, what was being said and how to react to it. There's the Brecht Theater. Um, it's near Friedrichs Berliner, Berliner Ensemble. 
Berliner Ensemble. Mm -hmm. the, and right, there's a restaurant right next to that called yeah. the Ganymed. It's a French yeah. bistro. Oh, around the corner. That around was, the corner. I don't think that was there in the in the East German time because there's a restaurant underneath the theater in the same building. That was there. That was always the, there's always been a theater a restaurant in in the Deutsche Theater where we went and in mm. the Berliner Ensemble. Well, I heard the Ganymed was there in the 70s. I mean, they reopened mm. it. After okay. the wall came down. But it was, it was not open around in the, in the Somebody told me that, I mean, I interviewed some people. They said that was like a place where a lot of the um, kind of spooky intelligence people would hang. And it was more or less off limits. You know, you'd see mm -hmm. Hungarian, American, Swedish, whatever. That was uh -huh. supposedly like this. Um, oh, many of the hotel bars in the 80s were where were the foreigners would go because they were so-called forum hotels. Um, they were open for Western currencies, so the Western... Or international visitors would go, and yeah. you could be a hundred percent certain that the Stasi was around there all the time, in the form of informants or Stasi officers, surveilling, um, you know, the bars or certain hotel rooms. That's all documented. So yeah, w which 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 bars were there? I mean, there was like Ricks and Cl what was the Ricks of Casablanca <laughs> in, <laughs> in, in in East in East Berlin? I, I don't quite know. I just there, there's a hotel Metropol. Um, where there was a bar, there's a Hotel Berlin, and then the the brand new one was in, opened in 1987 on the 750th anniversary of Berlin. Uh, it's called the Grand Hotel, and okay. they had a bar, and uh, that was sort of the the biggest, most mundane, greatest hotel of East yeah. Germany. Um, that was only open to foreigners because you had to pay with Western currencies to stay there. So cool. Well, welcome to Los Angeles in the West Coast. Welcome back. We've <laughs> yep. lived here before. I've uh, lived here for t 11 years. And this is where we won the Cold War, apparently. No, it's of great fascination to the Germans that Los Angeles has a Cold War museum, that the Wende Museum is, is here. Uh, and I, I ask myself whether Americans understand what Wendy actually means, but, uh, yeah. you know, it's a... It's a, it's, it's rather a political term. And in Germany, you would say, um, it's the term of the Socialist Party because they tried to turn themselves around last minute and it didn't work. Right. But the period of, of the fall of 1989, the peace of revolution, when the people, um, put so much pressure on the regime that they opened the wall is called the Wende. Maybe right? it should so. be called the Wende Zerocco. What would be Wende? We'll change back. What would be the, <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I guess there's another German word I, I wanted to know. I was thinking about something. Anyway, I really appreciate talk, talking to you as usual, and um, I hope we get to do it again. Um, maybe Berlin next time. Who well, knows? You know, you're yeah. certainly welcome. You never you, know. You know my office. I, yeah, I'd love <laughs> to go back. And I think I wanted, I was trying to think, like, there's a word nowadays when you, I mean, because so much information is available, right? You could kind of look someone up, right, um, before you meet with them, which is almost, nowadays it almost seems like something you should do. Just to see I, if they're a real person, first of all. I know. Like huh? if, you know you're like, well, you look, okay, yeah. You don't want to look in at too much. Right? I know. I, like, I, I try to actually make a distinction between professional and personal contacts. I right. try to not do it in the personal. Right. Yeah. You know, in the professional, exactly. as, a, as a communication, you know, I run communications. So I do look up what type of magazine or radio station that is that wants to interview somebody from the agency or my boss. So, you know, you just, that's just, that's just craft. You just do that. You want to make sure, you know, that it's, um, that, that you know a little bit about the background, what, what are they looking for? And does, does he, should, should that person, uh, uh, my colleague or my, the federal commissioner, should they be in that context or not? So that I feel is professional and normal that you would do. But in a personal life. So what would you um, call, what, if you had to come up with a German word, right? <laughs> what, what is the word for like, 
crossing that line of looking up to somebody too much. Okay. Um, that's Informationsgrenzkreuzer, <laughs> something like that. I was like, what is that behavior? What is that line? Right? What, that? what is that line where you're like, no, I, I don't um, need to know any more than, than this? Oh, um, well, um, it's like a discretion. <laughs> Discretion. Yeah. Discretion. As at some point, uh, you know, you, you're being either indiscreet. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't know if every really coined a term, or at least I can't think about it right now. What? It is because it's so fluid, you know. Germans would have a great word for it, though. They have a great. If that behavior, I'm like, just had, to, like making a long German word, like I know. Ach so, yeah. Ach so. What would it be? <laughs> what would be that? Uh, oh God. Um, Informationsübersprungshandlung. Yeah. <laacht> Information. Just make sure, just watch the Informationsübersprungshandlung. Handlung, yeah. It's like, Übersprungshandlung is like when out of a, out of a frenzy, you just, you jump over it into a different behavior. Handlung is, is a, there are certain behaviors. Informationsübersprungshandlung. Yeah. <lacht> <lacht> you heard it here first. You heard it here first in the live drop. And there's one more word I want to come up with. One more that, word. That word does not exist yet. It so, does now. You know. It does now. Yeah. <lacht> They're going to trace it. There's one other word that I wanted to, a word for. It's when someone has done information on you and they say something and you quickly realize, you can't really nail it down, but you just have a feeling that they looked that up and they didn't get that in conversation with you in a natural sense. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, but it's almost like a little, a little ghost that passes by. What would you call that? Let's come up with a German word for that. Well, you f you feel snooped out, right? You feel like yeah. scoped out. I mean, it's kind yeah. of, you kind of think, what? These people look, that person looked me up. Um, yeah. You know, I try to be transparent. I say, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, when I meet people Googled that you or, Googled yeah. you, I, I read on Wikipedia that you did this and this. And then they say, okay. oh, it's all for, it's all wrong on Wikipedia. That's not true. Or, yeah, yeah, I know. So, I mean, that, that's kind of, it's kind of a helpful, but again, that wasn't a professional context. But if I, I don't know, how would you, I don't think there's a word yet that you're feeling. It's an, it's a feeling of exposure or, you know, what you didn't trust me enough to just get to know me. You had to read up on me, find a second opinion on who I am, you know. But it's, it's, it's almost coming to a point that if you don't find anything about somebody online these days, You're a little freaked out because you think, what kind of a person is not to be found out online? Yeah. And what kind of, what's the word for pretending you don't know as much as you do? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you follow somebody on Facebook, right? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, Suddenly yeah. you see all their vacations. Oh, and they, so what else is new? Oh, I went so, to, I went to, you know. But my, you're an actor, so everybody knows how to went, be an actor. I went to China. Like, oh my, you went to, I had, what was <laughs> I that like? No it's like, idea. I saw your blog. I, I saw your And out of 50 photos, I know, I know everything you did there, but now I have to yeah. pretend that. That's right. It's how no social etiquette get really complicated. Yeah, you have to just um, mm. pretend neutral. I don't know, like, What's the word? Naivitätsvorschub. Naivitätsvorschub. It's like feign naivitätsvorschub. Gläserner Mensch. Gläserner Mensch. <laughs> well, thanks, Dagmar. Have a, have a great um, visit of the Vendor Museum. I will. The I change, will. We should call it the Change Back Museum. The Change Back Museum. <laughs> the, 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 the Turnaround yeah. Museum. 
Oh, my God, look at that. We timed it just about perfect. 55 <laughs> minutes. Thank you very much. <laughs> you uh, That was the live drop with Dagmar Harvestad. Bye. Bye. <laughs>